from the coast of Gadabanud country inland to Gulijan country to visit the Western District's small city of Colac in southwest Victoria. Once we drive out of the Otway forest canopy through roads lined in layers of ancient tree ferns, lush green countryside opens up and we are surrounded by rolling hills and fertile grazing pastures. The earth here is unique. It's the third largest volcanic plain in the world and because of that, plants grow here very, very well. Situated in the Victorian lakes and craters region, Colac has its own beautiful and surprisingly large lake, Lake Colac. It's here that we are headed for this special on-location episode of In the 19th Century, the botanic garden and the craze for rare trees. On the shores of this great body of water, the townsfolk of Colac established a remarkable botanic garden in 1868, which was both a scientific garden and a pleasure garden. It boasts over a thousand rare tree species. I've arranged to meet Gordon Morrison of the Colac Botanic Gardens, and he's going to talk to us about historic gardens. Gordon was the director of the Ballarat Fine Art Gallery for over 14 years, and among the many superb exhibitions he produced and curated, one of the highlights was Capturing Flora, 300 Years of Australian Botanical Art, which he put on in 2013. The Colac Botanic Gardens really are a hidden treasure of regional Victoria, and the reason why we have chosen it for our rendezvous is because it boasts a particular tree variety, the Aracalia bidwilli, commonly known as the Bunya Bunya tree. Gordon has a particular expertise and passion for three other highly characteristic trees of the Aracaria family that were highly coveted by designers of 19th century public and private gardens for their grand architectural shape and the cachet as an exotic specimen. I'm talking about the rare Aracaria aracana, otherwise known as the monkey puzzle tree, Aracaria heterophylla, aka the Norfolk pine, and the Aracaria woolamia nobilis, which was thought to be extinct until 1994. The history of colonial Australia is closely tied to these trees, and today Gordon will reveal their mystery and majesty. These four trees will be our portal into the world of the 19th century botanic garden. Welcome to our second episode of In the 19th Century. So we've now arrived at the Colac Botanic Gardens, and I've finally met up with Gordon Morrison after these weeks of fascinating research. And he's taken me on this wonderful tour through the winding pathways around this garden, sitting on the um, precipice of Lake Colac. And we've seen some incredible specimens already. But we're here now under the um, incredible two Aracaria bidwilli examples that are in the gardens. They must be at least about 30 metres tall and it provides such an amazing structure for the entire shape of the gardens. Um, perhaps before we get into the questions of this particular species and the garden, maybe you could paint a picture for our listeners about this tree and what are we actually looking at in the leaves and the shape and the trunk and the bark and all those incredible features that make it so distinctive. Well, uh, once seen, you'll never forget uh, a bunya pine. Uh, it's one of um, several species um, from this genus, uh, which is a Gondwanan genus, but I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit uh, a bit later. Essentially, that means now nowadays it's a Southern Hemisphere uh, tree. Um, it's it's one of two that grow on mainland Australia, with a third growing in uh, Norfolk Island, that being the Norfolk Island pine. As far as how they look, 
um, you've got a picture uh, as adults you've got a picture of this massive bowl of a tree that that goes um, pretty much straight unless they've decided they're going to grow at a, at a lean which occasionally they do then around that uh, huge um, uh, bowl there will be uh, arranged this uh, like repeated walls of very very straight branches which go out they dangle out at a slight angle and then at the end of those uh, there are these dangling uh, like green ropes of very very spiny uh, fern-like foliage and the whole thing uh, usually ends up with this a massive dome at the top that they end up growing kind of dome shaped very very symmetrical um, the old specimens, the, the bark uh, ends up looking almost like kind of melted candle or melted chocolate. They are, they are just an extraordinary tree. They come from just a very uh, uh, specific area in the mountains of southeastern Queensland uh, and they're regarded as a relic tree. So once upon a time there would have been much larger stands of, the, of these trees uh, in, in old time Australia when Australia had uh, a much higher rainfall. And how would have these two examples been brought into these gardens, which you know were planted really in about 1868, I think it was. Yeah. And how would have they come to have been such a prominent feature of the gardens? Um, they probably would have been supplied uh, by the uh, Melbourne uh, Botanic Gardens, which was very active um, as a sort of transfer station uh, in, in terms of um, providing all of these great public uh, gardens which uh, Victoria is so blessed with. But before that, of course, they would have come. Uh, the, se the seeds would have been uh, shared uh, by the botanists in in Sydney um, earlier. They would have been the first ones that would have had access to uh, the, uh, this species when it was first discovered um, in the 1820s. And something about these gardens is really amazing in that everything is so verdant and so green and lush and these bunya pines I've, I've looked at many around Victoria now and these ones are particularly healthy yes. what is it about the soil in this place that makes things here look so magnificent uh, I, I guess there's there's a caution there in that it is looking very verdant here right now but that's because we've endured the um, the year without a summer uh, and the rainfall's just been extraordinary because of the La Nina uh, event but nevertheless, we're standing about 300 metres south of Lake Colac, which is a, a pretty much a, a permanent body of, uh, of fresh water. Uh, Lake Colac extends as a water table underneath the gardens themselves. The gardens themselves are comprised of the most fantastic volcanic loam, which comes to this part of the world courtesy of it being part of what's called the, uh, the volcanic province of, uh, of Western Victoria. All of Colac to the north, uh, it's surrounded by volcanoes and they blessed this part of the world with extraordinary soil. And tell me, we were walking under the, um, the bunya just before and we found all these fascinating um, pine nuts on the ground and we had this sort of interesting comment about, oh, we wouldn't want to be standing there when that fell because they are actually quite large. They're, tell me about that cone. and, and uh, Look, they're, they're bomb size. They're... I'm sorry. I have to use the. I have to use um, inches. Uh, they're about ten inches uh, in diameter. These heavy balls. Uh, the the tree, if it's fertilised properly, will produce a, a massive tree. Will produce forty or fifty of those, and they will they will cannonball down on the ground. They have definitely killed people in the past, and some of these trees have been removed sadly from public spaces because they do 
um, uh, pose such a such a risk. But it's important that we talk about the the cones and the seeds because the seeds were they are extraordinarily nutritious, uh, and bunyipine seeds were part of a, a major cultural event in southeastern Queensland where the the tribes of of that entire region uh, would feast on them uh, every sort of February through to uh, to about April. Uh, incredibly nutritious. You've got to think in terms of pine nuts multiplied pine nuts about 20 times the size of a, <laughs> of a pine nut inside these enormous cones. So the enormous cones would be almost the size of a watermelon. Uh, Maybe not quite as big. Not, not uh, a size of a small watermelon. Size of a cantaloupe. Cantaloupe, right? Definitely okay. size of a cantaloupe. And when you think the tree could be thirty meters high, yep. that's a pretty big drop, isn't it? There's definitely. Uh, I know at Ripponlea, which is a, you know a glorious Victorian era garden in in St Kilda in in Melbourne, uh, which has several of of these trees, they have to rope off that area annually because they're just too dangerous. I think the same happens at Buda in um, in Castlemaine, where there's again there's another fabulous uh, bunya tree. Well, I wanted to ask you about that um, um, a particular bunya tree, so I might as well ask you about it now since you've raised it. Yeah. So Buda is the absolutely stunning property in Castlemaine owned by the Lavini family. Ernest Lavini came to the goldfields, but he was fortunately for him a silversmith and a jeweller. So his main business was in fact that he didn't actually have to go and find any gold. And he had five lovely daughters, none of whom married, I think. Yeah. Um, but outside of the house is the most magnificent bunya tree. And it is the most symmetrical I've ever seen, I think. Uh, yes, indeed. It's a, it's a beautifully grown one. Uh, and that symmetricality, I'm sure that's what would have appealed to Ernest Levini originally because it would have looked like one of his silver centrepieces as a, as a young plant. And that's a really good point to note that these trees look uh, quite different as, as young uns uh, and they, they, they're quite slow to, to actually get off as, as trees. And I'm sure that that particular tree, which is planted way too close to the way yes. too close to the homestead, I'm sure that was originally the central element of a, a raised flower bed, and it would have been there to look lovely and symmetrical uh, in, in the middle of uh, a, a patch of flowers. Well, let's just talk about that for a minute, because one of the things about the Colac Gardens are the actual driveways around it which would have taken a carriage and in fact you can still drive a car around it yes. and then these lovely serpentine paths so these gardens with those Victorian raised beds and specimen trees would have been a great place for um, Western District Society to meet and perambulate what would have it been like in the 19th century uh, coming here? I think it would I think it would have just been. You've got to almost picture a Monet painting with, <laughs> with the ladies looking magnificent in their crinolines and their um, their parasols, uh, and I, I mean I think it would have been a very exciting uh, place to be, to be. The the men folk, um, those who were botanically interested, there was enough of si sort of science interest to to keep them occupied. It's not to say that women weren't involved in in botany, because um, I know I ought to know more than anybody that there were there were women botanists and women botanical artists very active at this this point in time. But this whole issue of of how you presented yourself in in public um, that raged as a as a, a point of controversy in in public gardens. And the place where that really came to an absolute head was in Melbourne, where 
up until the beginning of the 1870s, the head of the Botanic Gardens, the director of the Botanic Gardens, um, uh, 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 Ferdinand von Müller, uh, he was a scientist. He was a, a scientific botanist. He, his idea of a garden was it was a research station. It was where you, you planted uh, specimens to study them. You, look, you wanted to see their similarities and their differences, so they had things called order beds, which weren't particularly attractive, um, but they, they helped with the, the study process. Um, whereas the, the public of Melbourne and certainly the, the government that was, that was being voted in, there was a groundswell that it wasn't, the Melbourne Botanic Gardens wasn't uh, uh, friendly enough, wasn't, wasn't the place you could go to promenade. Uh, and uh, Von Muller found himself sacked from the, the director's position and replaced by a man who had been his protégé, uh, William Guilfoyle, who immediately then complied with, the, with uh, introducing what's called the Gardenesque style, which um, is, is the whole thing where you lay out the, the garden so you, you encounter people, uh, you'll come round groups of trees, and, and it's like... It's like um, traveling through different rooms so it was a it was much more a pleasure a plaisance I think was the word that they used in the in the 19th century M- much more about about public pleasure so Guilfoyle also played a role here because of the keeper of the gardens here was here for a number of years then Guilfoyle came in in about 1910 I think yes he was asked in to to sort of put his imprimatur and comments on on the existing garden I think he found a very well ordered and and very attractively uh, uh, set out garden. He may well have been involved with its its ordering in early, in earlier decades. But the the original designer of this garden, um, his name was Bunce, and he actually he was the the director of the Geelong uh, Gardens, which actually is probably the nearest public gardens to to Colac. And I think Bunce probably should take the credit for for the original shaping of this place, whereas I think Guilfoyle was sort of brought in as, as a sort of uh, celebrity to put his seal on it, maybe to, to advise on, on some of the specific beds or some of the specific path- pathways. But Guilfoyle, uh, all of the gentry of, of Western Victoria competed to have Guilfoyle come in and advise them on the, on the layouts of their, of, of their gardens. Uh, probably the the classic example of that is Werribee Park. Mm. Uh, Werribee Park's just in a flat plain. It's a flat, featureless uh, uh, grassland. It would have been originally, and and Guilfoyle's designs just turn that into something quite special and, and exotic. Very similar, in fact, to what we mm. encounter here in Colac. And quite theatrical at Werribee Park. You have yes. grottos and waterways and I'm all actually sorts. surprised that there isn't a grotto here. Well there uh, might be a hidden one that we don't know about. Uh, I suspect I suspect there almost certainly would have been grottos here at, at one point in time. There's a there's a public toilet from the nineteen thirties which is built like a um, uh, an English crenellated castle on the other side of these well, We're gardens. going to go for a little walk now because we're going to go over to the, I think it's the original Keeper's Cottage. Yes. And we're going to try and, um, the wind's come up a bit here. So we're just going to take leave for a minute while we walk over there and then we're going to come back to talk a little bit about the link between um, the um, wonderful bunya pines here and the Sydney Botanic Gardens. Um, and what the special links are there. So we're going to sign off for here for a minute and we'll be back in a few moments. Fantastic. 
So we've had this wonderful walk through the botanic gardens at Colac and we've looked at some absolutely beautiful specimens on the way and we've wound up at the keeper's cottage which is actually a little bit more substantial than a cottage. Um, this would be where he would have prepared all of his designs for the gardens potentially or, or executed those designs from really here and it has this wonderful vista over Lake Colac but as we walk through the gardens you mentioned to me that they really sort of unfold as you walk through them from the keeper's cottage backways. Um, tell me a little bit about that structuring and the sort of colonial aspects to that. Uh, yes, uh, this like most uh, Victorian era gardens in this part of the world, it's really a statement uh, about how European settlers felt about themselves in their new environment. It's, it's partly about having an exotic collection that sort of unfolds uh, for the visitor. It's also partly about having ties back to home. And in fact, if you walk right round, promenade, promenade right round this garden, you'll notice that the dominant avenue tree is the English oak. That would have been very, very important to settlers uh, out here to have that kind of connection with uh, with home. Apart from anything else, English oaks deliver a fantastic um, uh, amount of shade during a hot Western District uh, summer. But look, you're also seeing uh, trees from the far-flung parts of the uh, of the empire. You, uh, trees would often be named after you know great generals or uh, or uh, uh, political leaders. Uh, and you're, you're, you're seeing a bit of uh, the geography just in the, in the way these, these plants are presented to you. Um, I'm quite fascinated by New Zealand plants and uh, uh, I always find it fascinating the way they get woven into the structure of a, of a botanic garden like this because they're, they're quite subtle um, uh, species. They don't necessarily uh, scream out at you. They're not necessarily sort of loud flowers or, or anything but they're, they're often used to sort of blend in with, uh, with the more spectacular uh, uh, plants. We saw a particularly interesting tree which had this very delicate um, russet red pendulous flower. Now that's unique in Australia, yes, I think. Yes, that's a gorgeous, uh, it's, uh, it's a coral tree. Uh, that's, uh, uh, the botanical name is Erythrina. Uh, it's a member of the pea family. Uh, it has these spectacular uh, deep coral coloured uh, uh, pea flowers. Uh, that one that we saw here, that's a very special uh, um, uh, plant. It's actually a hybrid and it was hybridised by William MacArthur who's a member of the, the MacArthur family of the Rum Rebellion and, uh, and Merino uh, sheep fame. Uh, William was the son of, uh, of John MacArthur. Uh, he had a very, very uh, important garden in New South Wales called Camden Park. Uh, and he raised that particular erythrina, that coral tree, and it would have been distributed to uh, botanic gardens uh, around colonial uh, Australia in the sort of mid to late uh, 19th century. And I was just so pleased to see a really good specimen of it uh, growing in Colac. And we've actually taken a photograph on it, which you will find on the In the 19th Century website, so all on the Facebook page, so look for that. Um, I want to go back to the bunya tree, just before we finish on that and move to our, some of our other important examples from the Araucaria family. Um, as I mentioned, their it was named after John Carr Nabidwill, and he was the inaugural director of the Sydney Botanic Garden, so there's a very interesting link between this tree and the Sydney Botanic Gardens, which were formed in 1815. Um, and now he successfully brought 
a live specimen of the tree to London, where it was studied and subsequently named after him, the Araucaria bidwilli. Um, and that was, he was, it was named after him by the English botanist William Hooker, Hooker in 1843. Um, do we know very much about that voyage and how would have he transplanted, uh, transported um, this seedling, I suppose, or seeds? Yeah, look, I don't know, I don't know the specifics of that actual voyage, um, but I can say that given the date, given, given that it happened in 1843, um, you're uh, talking about the beginning of the era of the um, famous Wardian case, um, which was a, a kind of mini greenhouse that was designed uh, to enable uh, plant specimens to be brought over vast distances. And we've got to remember that a voyage back in those days, a minimum of four months and, and could in fact take six, six months. Um, so actually getting a live specimen from Australia to uh, Northern Europe was a, was a major deal. Um, uh, with the, um, the Banyapai and with, the, with Araucaria Bidwilli, it would have been possible to transport um, uh, it as a seed, uh, provided you kept the seeds uh, moist. And the normal way they'd do that is wrap them up in sphagnum moss. Uh, but that in itself would probably have been kept in the uh, in the Wardian case, just to make sure that it was uh, in a very very stable environment for that four to six month trip. And it might be worth mentioning that um, one of the curators at the um, Geelong uh, Wool Museum has just written a book on Wardian cases. That's fair. Simon Keogh. Absolutely fascinating. Yes, so, I can't wait to read. Yes, well I've ordered it, but it hasn't arrived <laughs> yet. But um, yes, yeah, so another link between rare plant specimens and the wool industry. Um, but um, Unsurprisingly, um, Bidwell is largely identified with this tree now because it is you know, quite commonly found as you travel around Australia. Um, and there's something interesting about his grave. He was so closely associated with the tree that in fact when he died, he lived a very short life. He was 38 years old, I think, when he died. And his grave is in um, Queensland. And on each corner of the grave is a, a bunya tree. Doesn't surprise me in the slightest that it uh, that he would want a tree that magnificent to, to mark his grave. And in actual fact, you quite often see them uh, in cemeteries uh, where they, they have that um, stature and, uh, and seriousness that really, really goes with the environment of a, of a grand Victorian cemetery. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about um, is this sort of idea of whether a garden is a botanic garden or a botanical garden. And there's often a bit of a debate. And sometimes if someone says, oh, there's a botanical garden, you have this sort of, someone says something a bit imperiously, oh, no, it's a botanic garden. Um, so Murray Fagg, who is of the um, National um, Botanic Gardens in Canberra, has calculated that there's about 66 public gardens in Australia known as botanic gardens. And only 10 are identified as botanical. Um, do you, can you shed any light on this debate between the botanical botanical garden? Well, well, I would definitely, I would definitely take the side that it should be botanic garden. I think, I think the word botanical has a has a bit of a quaint, almost twee sound to it. It's not quite serious enough to to uh, justify being put to such a magnificent collection as this one, or let alone uh, one of the great state uh, collections. Well, thanks for clearing up. It's botanic, everyone, so we, <laughs> we, we know now. Um, so going back to the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney, it's the oldest botanic garden, 
um, and scientific institution in Australia. Thus, it's um, pretty much heralded the proliferation of botanic gardens throughout Australia. It was established in 1816, and it's really considered very much a living museum. Um, it's actually older than the Kew Gardens on the outskirts of London, which was formally desi designated a public botanic garden in 1840, because prior to that, it was a privately owned um, garden called the Exotic Garden at Kew Park, developed in 1772. Now, there is um, a looming figure who links both the Sydney Gardens and the Kew Gardens, and he is Sir Joseph Banks, and he, of course, famously accompanied and indeed funded um, Captain James Cook on his voyages to Australia in the 1770s. And I don't think we can have a conversation about botanic gardens in Australia or in the West, really, without mentioning Banks. So, um, Gordon, how influential was Banks on the international movement for plant hunting and collecting and later the development of botanic gardens in Europe and in the colonies? Uh, he was hugely important um, for a whole range of reasons. I think, number one, he was very wealthy. He was extraordinarily well-connected. Um, he knew how to uh, publicise the importance of, of a botany. He was in exactly the right position. He was president of the Linnaean Society. Uh, he was instrumental in the in the sort of setup of Kew as a as a public uh, uh, collection, and of course, uh, as the botanist on the on the Endeavour voyage, um, he presided over the discovery of just this innumerable set of of plants. Not obviously not just in. Uh, Australia, but also in New Zealand and uh, and South America, um, he's the person that uh, our wonderful genus of Banksia is uh, is named after. He was sufficiently uh, well off that after he came back, he was able to commission the best the best artists of the day to work with Sidney Parkinson. That was the the um, the artist of the of the first voyage uh, to work with Sidney Parkinson's drawings uh, to make them into uh, botanical plates, which could then be uh, disseminated across the across the globe. And he had connections everywhere because botanists didn't. They didn't see borders. In fact, it was one place where it didn't matter whether there was a Napoleonic war raging, there'd still be correspondence going on about what, what plants you've discovered and where and can we share the seeds. All of that was, was um, going on under his uh, sort of aegis. And do you know um, much about the reception of these new species that he brought back to, to England? I mean, I can imagine that they were actually, it was, you know, Quite, quite a spectacle to see these remarkable new trees and plants and flowers that had hitherto um, you know, never been known of before. Look, they, they became an absolute rage from a very, very early stage. They were being, they were being grown from the, from the 1780s onwards. Uh, one species of eucalypt, eucalypt camaldulensis, which is the, uh, the river red gum of, of our part of the world in, in Victoria, um, that was actually first described from uh, a young sapling that was actually grown from seed in a Camaldolite monastery outside of Rome around 1800. So, you know, within, within 30 years of the first European contact, there were, there were botanists growing these, these species from seed and describing them uh, scientifically in Europe. This, of course, was the era of Linnaeus's first... Uh, scientific ordering of, of botany. So, so plants were being uh, assessed 
and classified according to an entirely new set of, of categories and criteria. Uh, and the, the, the Antipodean uh, flora was just, it was just huge, it was exotic, it was different, uh, and it found itself into greenhouses. So often quite challenging, but I, I don't think it really mattered that a plant was difficult to grow, that just meant you had to spend more money on your stoves and uh, this and that. Uh, but they were, they were huge by, and by the 1820s, um, uh, all manner of, of rare uh, uh, plants from Australia were, were just de rigueur, not just in, not just in, um, uh, in England, but um, uh, Josephine in Malmaison was growing mimosa, which you, know, mm. you, you look at mimosa in February in, in the south of France, that's Cootamundra wattle, mm. you know, that's, and that, that was being first grown. Can you imagine what a Cootamundra wattle must have looked like in a hothouse uh, in France in 1815 when this amazing yellow first, mm. sort of first, first being seen? And of course, this is, um, I wasn't actually going to talk about botanical artists, but, um, but now that you've raised this, <laughs> and I know you did do an exhibition on it, um, this also led to a huge new developed market of um, botanical art and the painting of flower hunters and women particularly going out to find rare flowers and to paint them and to sell these works. Oh, yes, indeed. And, and uh, you know, there's this um, interesting nexus between between professionalism and amateurism, uh, where where women were crossing the line from from being lady amateurs to being paid uh, botanic arts, particularly in Australia in the in the nineteenth century, and so you get Margaret Flockton and Ellis Rowan. Uh, uh, Margaret Flockton's the was the second highest paid professional in the Sydney Botanic Gardens at the end of the end of the nineteenth century. Um, the the Heidelberg School. Uh, us were so jealous of uh, of Ellis Rowan that when she won a prize in the in the 1890s for for a, an image of it was Pandoria Pandorana the the beautiful Wonga vine uh, the the sort of scolding that comes out of Tom Roberts about you know how this this lady artist's flower painting beating us amuses me immensely. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Caroline Jordan's written a lovely essay about that, and I think he was miffed on two occasions, the maybe the 1880 um, International Exhibition and maybe the 1888 as well, because she kept winning yeah. all the time, yeah. <laughs> everything. <laughs> um, and none of the Australians did, because, of course, they were international competitions. Exactly. Um, so it was, you know, in a way, plants were a big business for, for many, they were. many people. And there was the, the nurseryman side of it, too, that... Uh, you know, as soon as these things were were brought to Europe, they were studied, but then they were turned over to to the uh, the horticulturists, the, the people, who, the nurserymen, who who ran uh, enormous um, uh, empires, not just in England, but Belgium was a, a huge centre of this. They were commissioning they were commissioning images as much to sell these new plants as as anything else. Um, uh, images that were commissioned for the, um, uh, the Curtis magazine, which was the Kew Gardens botanic magazine, they'd get ripped off by the Belgians and then slightly altered to, to sell plants in, uh, in the sort of European context. And in fact, that, um, 
when you mentioned the word nursery, it just reminded me, I think some of the debate between Von Mueller and Guilfoyle was that um, Von Mueller felt that he was a nurseryman. A, a mere nurseryman. Nursery <laughs> exactly. And I think he was maybe running a slight commercial operation from there, potentially. Uh, for, uh, for sure. There's, there'll be no... And, and I, I think he was probably... This is Guilfoyle, was probably also um, uh, getting a little bit of income by being patronised by Western District uh, uh, squatocracy for... Uh, uh, for his designs for their for their gardens. Yes, and there are there are two very close to here, Turkeith and another one which is near Biragara, which he definitely designed yeah. and would have populated with specimens from the botanic gardens in Melbourne. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um. So there's also the the rise of the public botanic garden also was contemporary with the rise of the Natural History Museum. Both of these organisations institutionalised the modes of displaying collections of rare and exotic plant specimens in some form of sort of logical, useful and ultimately aesthetic form. And this has given public gardens a really interesting multi-purpose. They seem to play various roles in society to be both scientific, horticultural, museological and pleasurable. In fact, their contemporary role as a designated green space or as a pleasure garden came much later. The primary role in the beginning was economic and scientific, as I understand it. Um, so going back to those initial sort of original um, uh, raison d'etre of the gardens, what was the scientific role of the Botanic Garden in the 19th century? Um, it was hugely important. Uh, and, and this tradition goes really actually all the way back to Renaissance times where... Um, you had the thing called the the physic garden, which was a garden where you you arranged all of your your plants according to um, their genus and species, but more importantly according to how you could use them for medicinal purposes. Uh, a lot of the earliest botanic gardens in in uh, Australia uh, and um, uh, Ferdinand von Müller would definitely have have done this in Melbourne with a fairly large section of the garden, it would have been arranged in, in these things called order beds where you're literally just seeing a, a range of eucalypts or a range of banksias so that, so that they can be compared scientifically so that you can, you can compare the seeds and the flowers and the, and, and the leaves. It doesn't necessarily make for uh, the most aesthetically pleasing... I find them fascinating, but it doesn't necessarily make for the most aesthetically pleasing... Uh, space and it's certainly not it's not a pleasure garden per se um, the only botanic gardens that I can think of still in Australia that has a little remnant of a of uh, an order bed is uh, uh, um, uh, in Adelaide uh, where there's a there's a lovely section that's actually set aside for salvias and uh, salvias uh, being these sort of um, uh, flowering perennials they actually they actually look quite good when they're arranged according to their species and which country they come from. Um, I want to talk about Adelaide in a minute, but just before we go there, um, there's a couple of terms that have popped up as I've been researching this. Um, in the history of botanic gardens, there's this term of the transfer and acclimatisation of plants. And it sort of is a clue to how important the traffic and trade in plants was to the burgeoning colonies. So um, perhaps, Gordon, tell me a bit about the sort of economic basis for plant hunting and how how important was organised horticultural through the international trade in plants to the development of the Australian colonies? Well, 
Well, um, if you take the members of the Araceriaceae family, which has been the sort of this running theme in our in our discussion, uh, what would people have been looking for with those those um, trees to start off with? Certainly, there was the issue of uh, what they looked like planted in as garden specimens, but people were also wanting to know what the quality of their wood was, whether that wood would actually be useful for for timber, for for um, furniture, or for shipbuilding. Um, they'd also be wanting to know whether there were interesting resins and, and economically um, useful uh, resins. So all of that side of things was a, an important consideration for the botanists that were working in, in botanic gardens. And just to give you an idea of how important uh, this can be, um, the, the New Zealand representative of, of this family, um, it's actually not it's not an Araucaria, but an Agathus. It's a, it's a cousin um, uh, family of trees. Uh, the cowrie pine, just extraordinarily important as a timber tree, and, and most, of the, most of the old growth cowrie pines were removed from the north part of Northern Island, uh, uh, North Island in, uh, in New Zealand within 50 years. But they also produced um, uh, gums, which were turned into varnish, the, the best quality varnish uh, was actually derived from the gum of the of the carry pine. That was that was dug up. It was mined basically on a commercial basis up until about fifty years ago. So it was a part of a, job, a botanist's job to actually assess, do the do the research to assess how what every single part of one of these trees could be used for. And strangely enough, with bunya pines. Um, the, the fact that they were an extraordinary food source for the Aboriginal people of southeastern Queensland was never actually was never really considered. I guess you had to grow these big trees for a, a very very long period of time before they're producing their fifty or sixty uh, uh, cones, and then you'd get your part your magnificent pine nuts. Mm. But but they they were they were eaten and they were appreciated. They just probably were written off as not not economically viable from a European perspective. It's mm, fascinating. Um, so this takes us very neatly, it's a bit of a segue, yeah. into a very important colonial botanic garden and museum, the very beautiful and useful Adelaide Botanic Gardens, the State Herbarium, their Museum of Economic Botany and their Palm House. And um, when I first visited the Museum of Economic Botany in Adelaide, I was surprised to find myself confronted with the commercial uses of plants so systematically laid out. Um, I always enjoyed botanic gardens for sort of beauty and splendour and as a place sort of away from the hustle and bustle of business. But in fact, they're intrinsically linked to commerce. And inside this wonderful structure are heritage cases filled with a suffete of plant specimens, all meticulously labelled and their uses explained in detail. Um, let's consider the building itself that this Museum of Economic Botany has held because it really is superb and we might talk a little bit about Gustav Rung who was the chief um, botanist at the garden, the, the uh, director of the garden. Uh, uh, no, um, he was the designer, designer. Of, uh, of the wonderful uh, oh. uh, uh, glass house uh, the, but he would have been uh, doing work for um, Robert Schomburg, Sorry, yes. <laughs> uh, a, a German-born German um, uh, botanist 
of course, there was a huge um, German influx in um, uh, in South Australia at that uh, at that time. So it's hardly surprising that uh, a German is working uh, working there. Um, but uh, you know, we don't we don't nowadays talk in terms of um, uh, stereotyping nationalities. But uh, the Germans were indeed famous for their scientific precision. Uh, and Schomburg was just a, was an example of that. And his his museum of economic uh, botany, which it really is his baby, it set out as this um, extraordinary temple to uh, to the research of uh, of plants in terms of their uses. And it's not just not just Western uses, but the the how things were used across the world. And that's the the specimens and the way they're displayed there. Again, in these wonderful glass cabinets, ebonized glass cabinets, so that even the cabin, cabinetry that presents these things is an exquisite use of, of plant materials. Uh, it's, it is an extraordinary uh, uh, memorial to uh, economic and scientific endeavour in a in a kind of botanical uh, arena, one of the, uh, an absolute must see in the in the Italian, uh, in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. Yes, I did get a bit muddled up there. Um, indeed, it was Dr. Richard Schomburg who was the second director of the Adelaide Gardens, and he was part of von Mueller's extended scientific community. And the pair regularly would correspond between Melbourne and Adelaide. In fact, I was wondering if Schomburg's German connections made him a very desirable candidate for the directorship of the Adelaide Gardens. It certainly did pay off when he visited von Mueller in Melbourne, who gave him a valuable collection of plants for the South Australian Gardens. Schomburg appointed the government architect-in-chief E.J. Woods to design the Museum of Economic Botany. He didn't stray far from the architectural playbook of the 19th century and... Um, Woods designed um, was squarely in the Palladian Greek revival style zone. While it is very alluring and elegant building, it is the contents that really captivate, including a series of paper mache fruits and fungi from German that are absolutely exquisite. They're sort of rather quaint to today's eyes, but really enjoyable to look at. Eclipsing all of this, however, would be the Palm House, which is a site of intense beauty. Schomburg had already clocked up spectacular successes with the flowering of a giant water lily, the Victoria Regia, in his first heated greenhouse in the gardens. 30,000 people flocked to the Adelaide Botanic Gardens to see it. But it was his palm house that really inspired wonderment. His interest was in tropical plants, which did not ordinarily occur naturally in the dry, hot climate of South Australia. Schomburg brought the prefabricated structure off the plan, so to speak, from Bremen in Germany. It had been designed by his fellow countryman Gustav Rung. So it was Gustav Rung who designed the palm house. Um, no, he was not the director of the gardens. Um, and it arrived in Adelaide in 1875. However, it had not been packed to withstand the long sea voyage and when the crates were opened, sadly, all of the glass panes were smashed. I can't imagine how Schomburg must have felt when he opened them up. Um, and in the end, they had to be reglazed um, from scratch in Adelaide, which meant the project was well over budget, costing a walloping £3,000. 
but it soon became the jewel in the crown of the gardens. It had a giant Mauritius palm in the centre, which was clearly going to outgrow the, the roof. Um, and at the end, one of the ends was a rockery, which Schomburg had imported from the Black Forest in Germany, and it had a little um, sort of waterway fountain um, running through it. When it opened in 1877, um, Schomburg sadly could not attend because he suffered from gout and he was having a bit of an attack then. Um, but he described the opening as a fairy tale for him. Um, it has subsequently been restored um, and it's still a spectacular jewel um, within the gardens and well worth visiting. And who would have um, consulted this museum for their economic purposes? Were businesses, um, uh, it, entrepreneurs? Look, it, it, it would be everyone from farmers to politicians to economists to just the, the, the scientifically minded uh, uh, general public. And think in, terms of, think in terms of those regular great exhibitions that were happening across the world after the initial one in, in London in 1851. Uh, that was a, they were very much about utility, public utility. They were about how we make the natural world s serve us and be useful to us. Uh, and given the period of time, that was always presented in a in a kind of aesthetic way, where uh, where things are shown off to their their best degree. A, a really ex good example of that. Uh, uh, timbers, cabinetry t timbers, they'd be presented in these exhibitions. You'd, you'd get, you'd get a, a display of the cabinetry timbers of the na native uh, trees of the colony of Victoria mm. would be a display in, in the, the um, uh, Victorian pavilion yeah. in any one of those, uh, those exhibitions. And, and really the, the, the Adelaide uh, Museum is just a it's, it's just a, a large-scale version of, uh, of that set in one, in one mm. botanic gardens. Mm. In fact, if you've ever seen those often games tables or specimen tables yes. of, uh, in Tasmania particularly, where all the sort of, it's like radiating out from a central um, sort of lozenge shape in the centre is all these different specimens of the timber that you would harvest in that region. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or women would often paint flowers on top of these tables as well, in fact, in 1855, Mary Morton Allport of the Allport family in Tasmania actually hand-painted a specimen table, which was, I think, a games table, and sent it over to the Paris exhibition, um, which is now, unfortunately, lost. But that was actually quite common for women to decorate these tables and, and send them um, through as a way of displaying what was occurring in that colony to the international um, audiences. Yes, that's fascinating, isn't it? It is. It really yeah. is fantastic. Um, so... Um, now I think it's time to move to maybe your favourite tree, um, we'll, we'll get to that, the um, Araucaria aracana, or otherwise known as the monkey puzzle tree. Um, now this, um, it's, a, it's a considered one of the rarest, and in fact in all my travels recently looking for specimens of these trees, I haven't been able to find one except in a little baby one planted in a private garden. <laughs> um, and so we come to these two rare trees, particularly the monkey puzzle and the Woolamai pine, which was thought to be extinct until 1994. So looking at the monkey puzzle tree, one of the things we can observe about this tree is that it does pop up from time to time in old postcards and photographs. In fact, you sent me a photograph of some town elders in front of the Linton Town Hall, we think, which shows a lovely example of the juvenile tree planted next to where all the men were standing in a row. Um, now, it seems that they were planted quite 
frequently, but yet they're very hard to find now. So maybe you could talk to us a bit about their unique um, appearance and then why we can't find them now. Yeah, well, um, they, are, they are unique in appearance, but although they're unique, they're also quite similar in appearance to bunyip pines. And a, and a lot of people will think that they'll think they've seen a monkey puzzle when they've actually seen a, a bunya instead. The difference is that um, I talked about the um, the halls of of branches that would come out of this enormous bowl for for the bunya pine. Well, the as you go further out and the and those branches uh, sort of bifurcate, uh, the the ones on a monkey puzzle the uh, very scaly like leaves that are very very uh, pointy. Um, they actually re they're retained much further along the stem, so you end up with these very very ropey uh, branches drooping down, entirely covered with these sharp scales. And of course, that's how you get this sort of nickname of monkey puzzle because um, some Victorian gent made the comment that it would it would puzzle a monkey <laughs> to be able to climb from the from the base to the to the top. Um, the monkey puzzle tree, the true monkey puzzle tree, um, Araucaria aracana, um, comes from southern Chile. Uh, it's a dominant species uh, there. Uh, it grows uh, f much further south than, than Australia in terms of latitude, much further south than, than we're situated. Um, that means it's much more uh, able to withstand cold. They're, they're quite capable of, of um, growing very, very well in uh, sub-zero winters. Uh, you often see photos of them uh, with those rapey branches hanging down, all covered in snow, looking extraordinarily exotic and pic picturesque. Um, that means, of course, that they could be grown in uh, in England. There are, I've seen photos of them growing completely covered in snow in, uh, in Norway. Uh, as, as long as they've got good deep soil and, and plenty of moisture, in in Australia, I think they were they were distributed quite early early on, uh, maybe as early as the 1830s and 1840s, and uh, they probably would have been um, sent originally to the colonial botanic gardens in Melbourne and Sydney, and grown on, and then and then handed out to um, either nurseries or or to the the smaller scale botanic gardens. Uh, and you you do see them in places like the this photo of the Linton Botanic Gardens. You also see one in an old um, uh, postcard that depicts the intersection of Sturt Street uh, and Lydiard Street in in Ballarat. So right in the centre of Ballarat, uh, uh, this photo shows the uh, Robbie Burns statue, uh, which is still there. And then immediately behind it, there's there's a, a quite well grown young monkey puzzle tree. The, uh, the date of that uh, postcard is about 1905. Uh, it's not there anymore and in its place is uh, an English oak. And I have a sneaking suspicion that, um, that that monkey puzzle had to make way for a more na nationalistic sen sentiment probably around the time of, uh, of the First World War, which is sad. Mm. Uh, but I don't think that said, I doubt, I doubt if it would have lasted to the, the present day, uh, because one of the few specimens that I know of that's, that's still around from a 19th century planting uh, is near Dean, 
also outside of, of uh, Ballarat, and it's a very ratty, it's a quite old tree, but it's a very ratty looking s specimen. They grow well in Christchurch. There's a fantastic one at the entrance to the Christchurch Botanic Gardens. There are one or two of them uh, in those sort of wonderful hill gardens on, on Mount Macedon itself. But it's a, it's a very rare, it's a very rare um, uh, tree in, in Australia at this time, and it will be a real challenge to get them to grow well. And this is kind of your passion tree. So what is it about this tree that captivates you so much? Uh, look, to be honest, I just love this entire genus. <laughs> so there are, there are uh, um, upwards of, I think, 21, maybe 23 um, species. A lot of them actually come from, uh, from New Caledonia. I just love the reptilian, ancient... The, they are like dinosaurs. They, they they come. They actually they predate dinosaurs. They've been around for 150 million years. They're the most extra. They've got the most extraordinary tree personalities. I, I guess the monkey puzzle is is a bit of a standout because it does all of that in in a, a kind of magnitude that's beyond beyond what you'll see elsewhere. But I mean, I, I honestly, I love I love the bunya pine pretty much as as much. Um, so now this is actually dovetails very nicely into one of Australia's very exciting moments in yeah. its history. A rare plant discovery. It's probably the, one of the best rare plant discoveries of all time. Um, it's another one of your beloved Aracaria trees, the Woolamai pine. And the other day um, a friend of mine posted on Facebook a holiday snap in um, New South Wales Township of Parks and he was actually posting a snap of the Elvis Presley um, statue which is unusual in a garden in its own right, but there it was. But uh, what caught your eye when I sent it to you, saying what was this pine behind him, was the pine behind him, which you identified as a Woolamai pine, Aracaria woolamia. Um, so, you know, this is a pretty crazy juxtaposition, the Woolamai pine, rare, special, and then Elvis Presley. Um, what is this magical story of this once extinct tree variety and its recent discovery? Oh well, before we get onto that, I, I just have to um, do one little check on the on the nomenclature. Um, uh, the Woolamai pine is actually its own separate genus. It's in the Araucaria family. There are there are three cousins. There's Araucarias, um, like the Banya pine. There's uh, the Willamai pine, which is in this genus called Wallamia, and then there's a, a third one, which is Agathis, uh, which the, the cowrie pine of New Zealand is the, probably the, the best known uh, example. So think of them as cousins in the Araucariaceae family. There's, there's a bit of um, heavy duty um, botanical nomenclature going on there. And then, as for the, the really important stuff, um, why is it so special and why is it so important? This, this um, genus was only known from 100, 150 million year old fossils up until the mid-1990s. And then this guy abseiled down a, a valley somewhere about 70 kilometres uh, north-west of Sydney. And he encountered this tree, the likes of which he'd never seen before and basically none of us had ever seen before. And after... Uh, a couple of years, it was established that this was a true living fossil. Uh, this was an, a, a, an example of a genus of, of plants that had been lost to 
lost to the world uh, up until that, that discovery. Uh, something that only happens, that, that's, that has not happened since the Dawn Redwood was, was discovered in, uh, uh, in China in the um, late 1940s. There was a, an ancient fish that was discovered off Madagascar uh, about 100 years ago called the coelacanth. Uh, ginkgos are, are another example of a, of a li living fossil that's much better known from, from um, uh, rocks than from the, the uh, living thing. Um, but it's a very, very special, very, very special thing. Uh, and, and it restored an entire genus to this, to this family. So sort of botanically, that's very important. And they've got, in terms of how they look, they've got an extraordinary personality too because mm -hmm. they've... They have these sort of ferny um, uh, branches that, that the, they're not actually leaves. I guess they're, I, they're sort of flattened needles. Mm. Uh, you think of, think of a, a, a fern growing like a tree. It produces female cones, which, are, which have all these kind of uh, curled bristles on them. And then male uh, pollen-bearing uh, cones called strobili, which are kind of purple in, in colour. So the different male and fe female flowers. Um, we're yet to see in, in uh, botanic gardens, and there's some spectacular young examples uh, in, in this garden in, uh, in uh, Colac, we're yet to see what they look like as, as uh, adults. But the photos I've seen of, of the, there's only about 30, 12 or 13 old growth trees actually surviving in mm. this, in this uh, canyon. Um, they, they grow um, 40 metres tall. The thick trunks along the lines of the rest of the, of the family that, uh, that they come from. But in this particular um, uh, species, the trunks are all knobbly. They're, they're described as looking like uh, cocoa pops just all up the stem of this, uh, this tree. So it's, uh, uh, it's going to be something that I guess we're going to see more of uh, and become more familiar with in the decades and generations to come. And it was interesting when they found the trees, they decided to clone it and um, distribute it really. Yes. So it would actually start populating gardens and houses and landscapes. They, they were extraordinarily concerned that people would try and get into this canyon and, and just remove the mm. originals from, the, from its, its one site. Uh, so the, the, the strategy that was adopted was uh, grow as many cuttings as they, uh, as they could and get them out into the horticultural trade as quickly as possible. And it became a quite trendy thing mm. to have a, to have a, um, uh, a young Woolamite. I mean, they actually work quite nicely as a, a, as a, um, a, a, a veranda pot plant for the first 10 or 15 years of their, <laughs> of their lives. Um, but uh, uh, people at that stage didn't really know what their whole horticultural requirements were and I think a lot of people put them out in the sun which wasn't what they naturally were they're supposed to be in the dappled shade of a of a deep canyon so a lot of people had had a uh, lack of success with their ra initial rather expensive uh, uh, outlay um, but I think they're, they're a wonderful thing I was recently given one uh, that is has had um, outgrown its back veranda uh, and uh, I've taken that down to my property down at Cape Otway where it's looking very very happy 
because it gets the right kind of dappled sunlight down there. And maybe just touch on the moment when we nearly lost this rare um, yes. group of trees in, the, in its forest glade because the fires went right through that zone. Absolutely. The, the terrible bushfires of, of December and January of, of last year um, went right through uh, the Willamai National Park. Uh, and uh, if it had not been for a concerted effort by some extraordinarily brave and hard-working um, uh, people from the fire service who literally dumped just an amazing amount of water just on this specific spot mm. that actually preserved this tiny little remnant colony of these, these trees when the entire canyon was, was burnt through. So there are some harrowing photos on, online of these green, weird-looking sort of ferny trees still green in the middle of just a, a sort of mass of burnt. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. Well, let's get on to the Norfolk pine now, which is our final pine for the day. Yeah. Um, so it has very strong 19th century credentials. Um, it really does have a rich history. Um, most of us are very familiar with this tree because pretty much all of our seaside visits, whether it's Manly, um, Lawn, uh, Port Ferry, um, Warrnambool, they're all, the silhouettes of those coastlines are dotted with this very picturesque, beautiful, um, upright tree, the Norfolk pine. And there's one at Lawn which was planted in 1932 by um, <coughs> Mabel Stribling at the pier at Lawn. And that is that, that plantings that she made have given the town its very distinctive um, silhouette as you drive into town. Um, but it's a far from decorative history, really. And it's um, you know, linked to the, uh, the voyages of discovery by Captain Cook, who is regarded often as the first European to sight these distinctive tall straight trees when he was on board the HMS Resolution on his second voyage to the South Pacific in 1774. And being tall and straight, he thought that they'd be very good to use in shipbuilding as his masts. Um, and it was this assumption, I believe, that led to the establishment of a penal colony of Norfolk Island. But um, Gordon, was Cook right? Were they actually good for um, shipbuilding? And, and what, was the, what actually transpired on Norfolk Island? Um, the, he was half right. They, they grow, whereas the bunya pine forms an immense dome and has a very, very thick bowl-like trunk, um, a, um, a, a well-grown Norfolk Island pine, dead straight, not quite as massive at, at the, the base, uh, and, and superficially you would think would work fantastically well as a, as a ship's mast. But um, they are conifers, they, they are um, softwood trees, and uh, ultimately uh, masts that are made out of them would snap in, once they were subjected to sort of heavy-duty uh, wear. So it was, it was uh, a failure as, a, um, as an experiment. The, the trees that were growing in Norfolk Island, and that's the only place that the Norfolk Island pine originally uh, grew, it was in, it, it's endemic to uh, the island, they were absolutely massive trees. Uh, uh, they, it was believed when it was a penal colony that they'd, be, they'd live forever, but in actual fact um, most of the trees were destroyed within the sort of 30 or 40 years of, of that particular convict settlement. Uh, and they've only really clawed back in the last hundred years back from the gullies that they'd sort of 
um, re retreated to. Um, you know, it occurs to me, we've talked about all of these things and we've referred to them as pines, but in actual fact, they're not pines. Um, they're conifers. They, they belong to uh, uh, this very, very ancient lineage of cone-bearing trees, which is what conifer, conifer means, uh, and they don't reproduce from flowers. Um, the, the male, the male um, uh, pollen uh, parts just literally just shower um, uh, massive amounts of pollen onto the female cones, and that, that causes them to, uh, uh, to, to fertilise. Uh, so they're, they're a very ancient lineage. They're, they're not, um, they're, they're evergreen, um, although they'll shed a certain amount of their leaves on an annual basis, but they're, they're, they're not deciduous trees. Um, important point to, yes. to note. <laughs> uh, back in the 19th century, anything that um, had, had uh, uh, t a sap that smelt a little bit like turpentine and had soft uh, blonde-coloured wood, which all of these do, they just ended up being, and cones, they'd end up being called mm. pines. Yes, we probably should have talked about that at the beginning, but it's um, thank you for <laughs> clarifying that very important point for the scientists who are, and botanists who are listening. <laughs> um, so it's some, one surprising thing about the Norfolk pine is that while we really do, we tend to associate it with the Pacific and with the Southern Hemisphere, it actually pops up all throughout the world. It's quite international, really. Um, in very far-flung places such as the Isles of Scilly off the coast of Cornwall in the UK um, and other parts of the world as well. What is this sort of international context um, of the Norfolk... Um, I can't say pine now. The, the, scary, the Norfolk scary. conifer. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what actually is that international jet-setting life that it leads? Well, Can you tell us about um, that? They're very, very attractive trees. And I think if, you, if anybody has been to Port Ferry, where I think they, they grow best of any, any place other than Norfolk Island, um, where you see them in their abs absolute best, they're an am amazingly stately tree. They're an extraordinary windbreak. Uh, and they just do extraordinarily well right by the seaside. There's, there'd be no part of Norfolk Island more than a couple of kilometres from the from the sea. So, provided you you can uh, give them uh, a, a, a sort of seaward aspect, uh, and you not subjecting them to frosts below about minus one or minus two, they will do well for you. And that means you will see them in places like the Scilly Islands. Uh, you'll see them, uh, botanic gardens in places like uh, Lisbon, Palermo, Madeira, the whole west coast of, of, um, uh, of uh, uh, United States, California, they do extraordinarily well and, that, and uh, uh, they have no pests in those environments so there's nothing, nothing eating them. Here we get cockies sort of savaging the... Because it's, Hockey's like nothing more than to eat the, the pine nuts from, from um, these particular trees. Um, you referred me to a great article, actually, that came out um, in Mianjin called, uh, from Stuart Cook, um, written about echoes of Gondwana, I think it was, yeah. something like that, along those lines. And I think he sort of posits this view that um, when the, the land masses split up and they were no longer connected, um, that is one of the reasons why you find species at one end of the earth yes. and another at the other end. And I find that just a, just a fascinating um, geological history of, of what's sort of taken place on this earth and how these trees have actually survived all these yeah. mam mammoth changes, really. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, 
their ancient tree is part of their fascination. And I mean, we are literally talking about uh, a, a genus or a family of trees that has been around for 150 million years is just mind-boggling. Mm. Um, I've been to the Banya National Park in southeastern Queensland, where where they grow splendidly. In Chinchilla, which is about 150 kilometres away, there's a there's a fossil bed, and you can find lumps of petrified wood which has been agatized. It's got all co- uh, uh, silica in it. It's a hard, beautiful agate-like rock, but you look at you look at the striations in it. It's the growth rings of some ancestral member of the Araucaria family that's 150 million years ago, and yet it's only 150 kilometres away from where where the living descendants are still uh, are still growing, and that's just absolutely mind blowing. But you look at you look at where Araucariaceae, the whole family. Uh, exists so this is this is the Araucarias, the Woolamies, and the Agathis. They they all belong. They all nowadays come from. They grow in uh, parts of the remnants of what was Gondwana, which was the the second of the supercontinents. So, two hundred million years ago to to about a hundred million years ago, uh, S- South America, Africa, Madagascar, India. Australia, Antarctica, and New Zealand were all joined together, and then that plate tectonics meant that bits of it started moving apart. Um, South South America and and uh, India started going up to what was then the Tethys Sea, and ended up crashing into in, into ancestral uh, Eurasia, causing the Himalayas. It went sufficiently north, sufficiently early that it lost its it, its members of this family. Uh, South Africa also lost members of the family, but it's got there are related things that are, are still surviving there. Uh, South America has two species of Araucaria. Uh, uh, Australia has three, if you count the Norfolk Island as being an Australian. New Zealand doesn't have them have one, but it has an it has an Agathis. Uh, New Caledonia has something like 17. It's the it's the headquarters. It's <laughs> it's Araucaria Central. It's the place you want to see the greatest number of these species. Uh, New, uh, New Guinea has the tallest one. It's called the Clinky Pine. It's a very very important um, uh, timber in in uh, uh, in New Guinea, and that all connects to this ancient movement of the of the continents over this sort of 150 million year period. It's a pretty amazing thing. It really is. And I think, you know, there's so many remarkable legacies of um, difficult times in the 19th century. Some of those legacies are very negative, but one of the legacies that has actually been very positive for us is that some of these trees survive and are in gardens such as this where we can observe them and enjoy them and learn more about them. Um, and it's you know just such a remarkable experience to better walk through here with you and learn about um, you know so many interesting facts about these trees and also you know, their poetic qualities. And I think we're probably going to close there because we've been talking for quite a while now. And I wanted to close, if you don't mind, on a poem from David Maloof, who has written a beautiful poem about the Araucaria bidwilli, 
um, called Evergreen. So I'm going to um, with your, with take the liberty of reading that poem, probably not as well as David himself might read it, but um, this is his poem, Evergreen. It's trees I look for nowadays, year after year, adding their rings, recording this month's frost, that season's burning, the arrival and departure of leaves, birds, mice, barefoot invaders, and apple core wars in the kingdom of twigs. I've discovered an old man's folly. I'm planting giants, witch elm, chestnut, larch, a seed cast into the next long shadowed century. I doze in the shade of a bunya pine, its roots deep in the 1880s, bubbling with doves. In its wind-rocked boughs, the heavy green Pacific drowses, and grandfather sets sail to find us. The tree is dreaming our lives, its dust-thick shadow reaches the road, and I swing high on a tide of voices. Green, green, evergreen. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of In the 19th Century, um, all about the botanic gardens and the craze for exotic plants in that period. And I'd like to thank Gordon Morrison for sharing his passion and expertise on the subject with us. Thank Th you. Thanks, Lara. For those who were wondering about the music that we played in the introduction to this episode, Botanic Gardens in the 19th Century, it was in fact selected by our special guest, Gordon Morrison, and it was Franz Schubert's uh, Trout Quintet, the Fourth Movement. It was a recording made in 2014 at the Whittington Festival in Shropshire in the United Kingdom. Franz Schubert in fact composed um, this very famous piece in 1819, uh, just a couple of years after the foundation of the Sydney Botanic Gardens. Now it sat on his desk for a couple of years, um, in fact a decade, um, as it was not published until 1829, but it fits very beautifully with this particular episode. I'd like to also acknowledge the support um, of the librarians at the Colac Community Library who were very helpful and supportive of this podcast. Now I'm going to leave you now because I have work to do to prepare our next in the 19th century podcast which um, a topic of which I will reveal shortly um, on both the Instagram page and the Facebook page and in fact that reminds me um, it's always worth checking those pages because often I will publish um, illustrations images references etc relate to um, each episode and in fact all of the literary references that we referred to and some of the images from this podcast will appear there in the next 24 hours. Thank you once again for joining us and good night.